Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two. Episode 13. On today's programme, I talk to psychologist, historian, soldier, and author, Professor Reuven Gal. Reuven spoke to me about his pioneering book, The Portrait of the Israeli Soldier, that was published in the mid 1980s. This book explored the motivation of Israeli soldiers to fight and serve in the IDF. Reuven spoke to me from his home in Israel. It is season two episode 14, and on today's programme I talk to podcaster and historian Dr Zach White about his research into the role of discipline and court-martials in the British Army during the period of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. Zach spoke to me from his home in the south of England. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself, your podcast, your charity, and how you became interested in military discipline during the Napoleonic era? Thanks very much, Tom. It's it's lovely to be here. Although it, I've got to say, this feels a bit weird. I don't know if you ever end up being asked to be a guest on other shows as a podcast host, but being on the other side of the podcasting mic is a deeply uncomfortable experience when you're used to being the one who fires off the questions and not really worrying about what comes next. Uh, <laughs> An occupational hazard, I gather. Yeah, completely. I, I sometimes feel that, you know, as the host, we almost have it easier than than our guests uh, when it comes to this job. But yeah, um, if so I, I present the Napoleonic Wars podcast, a very unimaginatively named show. Uh, I used to call it the Napoleonicist, but nobody knew what the heck I was talking about. And it sounded a bit like narcissist, which is very apt when you're talking about people like Napoleon and Wellington. But, you know, a rebrand was needed. So, yeah, Napoleon, it was podcast. Um, get it wherever you get your podcasts, um, as they say. And it's a, actually a bit of a misnomer because we do everything from 1775 through to 1815. So, you know, you can, you can come at me on the, on the branding side of things by all means, folks. But if I'm not podcasting, you will probably find me up to my ears in admin for the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity. The best way to describe this is think Commonwealth Wargraves Commission, which I love to death, but for the everything from the American Revolution to the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So 1775 through to 1815. What we aim to do basically is, is three things. So we restore the graves of veterans because, of course, the vast majority of people who served during this period actually made it home. They went on to leave these, in some cases, very fulfilled lives, in other cases, you know, adversely affected lives due to their injuries. But nonetheless, they got back. And some of them, if they were wealthy enough and fortunate enough, got a marked place in the earth. Now, over the last 200 years, we tend to have forgotten where those places in the earth were. And so part of the role of the charity is to find them, first of all, assess the states of the graves and see if we can clean and restore them, which is every bit as much of a headache as it sounds, quite frankly. But if that weren't enough, the reason we started this in the first place, the reason I built this team, was because we were increasingly coming across stories of veterans being dug up, you know, just through any number of things, archaeological digs, making chance discoveries, sometimes building work, kind of uncovering 
remains. There's um, obviously a very recent and famous case at Waterloo where they found the remains of what we believe is a soldier. More analysis needed to confirm that, but the, the, you know, the signs are promising there. But also there were 83 found at Vianen in the Netherlands from the Flanders campaign in the 1790s. Um, and so one of the things that we try to do is reach out to local authorities and say, look, we do understand that for you as archaeologists or museum um, curators, as the, because often these remains end up you know, in, in collections for museums, we understand that for you they're artifacts, but they're also people. They, these are human remains. And the argument that we always put forward is if this was a body of a veteran from 1914, there would be no argument. Nobody would be saying, oh, look, why don't we put these remains on display in a glass case, which does happen for my period. And so we try and kind of have that conversation and say, look, we'll pay for burial. We'll pay for all the analysis to be done so that you know everything you could possibly want to know about these remains. If you want something to put on display, we'll get you know 3D laser scanning done of the remains and we'll produce replicas that look as good as the real thing so that you've got what you need from an educational standpoint. Um, and... You know, just just give us the bones and, and we'll do the rest. And so that's the other kind of main side of what we try to do. Um, but also we kind of use these people's experiences as a way of educating the public about this period. This is a conflict that people touch on because everybody's seen Sharp. So everybody or they or they've either seen Sharp or they've seen Hornblower or they've seen Master and Commander. You know, between those three, usually you've got somebody. Um, but people don't kind of know as much about this period as they do about later conflicts for some obvious reasons. So using these people's experiences and telling their stories is a lovely way to help people to kind of connect with their heritage. So as you can imagine, we're, we're quite busy with that. We got our first grave cleaned back in October. That was the grave of Walter Burke, who's the guy who literally held Nelson's hand as Nelson died aboard HMS Victory. Uh, so he's in a place called Woodham in Kent. And we had his grave cleaned for the um, anniversary because every year at the local school there's a, a flower laying ceremony so we made sure that it timed in really nicely and for the first time in a generation those school kids were actually able to read the inscription on Burke's grave which was just the most incredible feeling to know that we're having that impact so yeah that's that's what I end up doing day to day but what I'm meant to be doing the day job is meant to be um, just kind of finishing off turning the doctorate into a book. So I've just finished a doctorate at Southampton University looking at crime and punishment on Wellington's army, um, which is, is endlessly fascinating. Um, I think you're mad to get me started on this because I will rabbit on for the next three evenings. But yeah, let's have at it. So we are coming to look at crime and punishment uh, uh, during the Napoleonic era. Now, what I know from your podcast is that napoleon is actually four inches high wellington boots were galoshes and uh everybody in the napoleon army was whipped on a regular basis now to confirm my uh, nature can you tell us about court martials discipline punishment in the british army during what we may call the late georgian period from about 1790 to about 1815 surely my 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 knowledge is correct here um are you sure you've been listening to my show i mean i do, I, you, I say that tongue in cheek but actually i do get accused of pro-british propaganda apparently because i'm not a fan of napoleon and i don't shout vive l'empereur every episode um so sorry listeners there you go spoiler alert if if that's what you're looking for then i'm afraid the napoleonic wars pod perhaps isn't the best one for you but um yeah no as 
as you say in that tongue-of-cheek way, we have this perception that what the British army's doing is flogging these men within an inch of their lives. And, you know, it's not just a popular perception, it's a perception that historians have put forward. So Roger Norman Buckley did what is, by and large, a brilliant piece of research in his book, Britain's West India Army. And he puts this um, argument across that the British army is based on terror and torture as public spectacle, and that the military justice system is capricious and arbitrary. Now, they're great phrases. And as I say, by and large, I love Buckley's work, but there is a problem. And the problem with Buckley is that he looked at the top level of military courts, and he only actually looked at one of the books of records. And we'll, we'll get onto records in, in a bit, I'm sure. But there are three levels of military court. So if you're only looking at the top level, you're only going to get the most severe kind of cases and the most severe punishments, which therefore means you've got a very limited view and you don't understand the give and take and the flexibility that exists within this system. So the way it works is at the top, you've got what's called the general courts martial. I'll abbreviate them through this to GCMs just for the sake of time. Um, these have the biggest powers. You have a court that consists of 14 officers. They only need 13 officers. The reason they have 14 is that in order to inflict a death sentence, one of the public can inflict at this level of court, you have to have 13 officers present. Now, if one of those officers falls ill, if you've got 14 present at the start of the trial, you've still got a spare. So you've still got somebody who's been in that court the whole way through, who understands the process, and so the court retains its full power. Um, so that the reason, the idea behind this court is that they try the most serious cases. We're talking desertion, murder, the most egregious cases of, of mutiny, those kinds of crimes. And the the death the death sentence is a thing during this period. It's a thing in society. You know, it's years before that gets phased out. Um, but flogging is the thing that people generally latch onto. So the General Courts Martial have the power to inflict 1,500 lashes on an individual. So I'll, I'll deal with the inevitable question now. Is that enough to kill a man? Nobody actually knows, is the honest answer. Everybody gets very flippant and they go, oh, yeah, well, that'll kill a man. Mm, we don't know. Part of the reason that we don't know is there are different styles of whip during this period. So this is getting uber kind of nerdy about flogging. But these are the questions that get thrown at me. So you kind of have to find the answers to them. Um, it's entirely possible that the Navy is using a different style of whip um, and you've got kind of very limited source material to indicate quite what's going on. But I have seen some um, whips used by the Navy. In fact, I was on HMS Victory just last week, uh, literally, and, and saw two different styles within different ex ex exhibits across the, the site. Um, some of them, if you inflicted 1500 lashes with it, there wouldn't be a human left at the end of it. Um, others, perhaps you've got a better chance. But the bottom line is that actually 1500 lashes is never ordered. Well, it actually knows that's not quite true. It's ordered on three occasions and it's commuted every single time. So it's never actually inflicted. What they do inflict is 1200 lashes. That's done on seven occasions. So still a huge number. You know, let's not pretend that you wouldn't be an absolute mess by the end of that and you'd need very serious medical treatment. Um, so that's your top tier of court. That's the general court martial. At the bottom, you've got the regimental courts martial. Now, this kind of does what it says on the tin. This exists within a regiment, staffed of five officers. And this is where you deal with the minor things, you know, the drunkenness, provided the drunkenness isn't kind of exacerbated by telling your officer where they can go. 
because you're drunk and you don't really know what you're saying. Um, you also find things like uh, very minor cases of theft, um, particularly if you try to sell your equipment that can be dealt with at this tier of court. Dirtiness sometimes dealt at regimental court martial, but there are other ways of dealing with dirtiness that are quite kind of amusing that we'll, we'll deal with in a bit. And then in 1812, you get the third tier. So this is the general regimental courts martial. And as the name suggests, this is meant to kind of plug a gap between the two. It's meant to be a stopgap exercise where you kind of try the most serious cases that um, would normally be tried at regimental court martial, but aren't quite serious enough to require a general court martial. Most that's ever inflicted by a uh, GRCM, as I call them, um, is 1,000 lashes. RCMs are, are limited to 500 lashes until 1812, and that's brought down to 300. So you've got, it's something to bear in mind, you've got changes to this system all the way through this period. Some of those actually are instituted by the Duke of York. Um, and the way in which the, the GRCMs are used, rather than punishing better, they end up being used to punish more. And so what you don't see is a sort of reduction in general court-martial cases. It's not a case that these trials are kicked downstairs. If anything, it's just more cases are kicked upstairs to the GRCM. And you've got vast numbers of these trials, and we'll talk about you know, how common those are in a bit. Um, but it's worth bearing in mind that none of this kind of matches the capricious and arbitrary idea that Buckley puts forward for one very simple reason. It's all laid out in law. This is all documented. It's all written down every single stage. And then it's checked and it's counterchecked. And then it's checked again. The origin of military law comes from the Mutiny Act, which is one of the most scrutinized pieces of legislation in the United Kingdom during this period, because it's assessed by parliament every single year. It has to be. As part of it, it presents the estimates for the army which have to be approved by Parliament. So in the process, they go through this act and you see regular debates on ideas around flogging and whether or not the time has come to do something about it. The other element of this is the Articles of War. And what the Articles of War do is they take the kind of legalese, if you like, of the Mutiny Act and put it into a format that ordinary people can understand. Because you've got to bear in mind that this is a law that governs the rank and file who by and large are not hugely educated. They might be able to scroll their name, maybe, but they don't have the ability to understand what very kind of detailed legal language actually means. So the Articles of War take that and they make it use, they take that mutiny act and they make it usable. Uh, and those Articles of War are read to the unit every two months. So if you are in the army, you absolutely know what the law says and how it affects you day to day. So what records exist um, that give us an understanding of how this system operated? In a word, tons of them. Um, I'm very fortunate in that sense. And it's a very sort of unmined or previously unmined. I've now mined it a bit. Um, a very unmined source of information. So you've got registers of every single trial that takes place at general court-martial and general regimental court-martial during the period from 1807 onwards. You've also got some general court-martial re registers for the 1790s, but they aren't entirely consistent. Um, and 
you've also got um, records for some of, but by no means all of, the regimental courts martial. The way those work is that every six months the regiment is inspected and a report is written. And part of that report has to include from 1811 the uh, the last six months worth of regimental courts martial that have taken place within that unit. Now, the implementation of that and the survival of those records is a bit slapdash. Uh, it's very clear that it's not until 1812 that it really starts to pick up. And even as late as 1818, you've got plenty of units where these returns either haven't survived or they were never included in the original report. So implementation is definitely an issue. But what it means is that if you put all of this together, you can start to examine things like prosecution trends. So 50% of trials during this period were for desertion or absence. And what's really interesting about that is that when you look at the Peninsula War, desertion affects maybe half a percent of troops deployed at any given point in the Peninsula War. So desertion is not an endemic problem certainly under Wellington's command during this period. Different theatres, you do have much higher rates of desertion, but nowhere near 50%, of course. Um, now, again, this might be a, a kind of reflection of things like record keeping. Um, if you are a member of a unit, do you want your unit tainted by association with a deserter? Probably not, because that degrades the reputation of your unit, and therefore by association, that degrades your reputation. So what you do see is the passing off of very obvious cases of desertion as lesser crimes. The most egregious one that I ever found of this was a guy who deserted in 1801. He was found in 1811. So he's, he's been away for sort of 10, 11 years, and he's tried for having been absent, inverted commas, from his unit from said date in 1801. It's a very, very clever ploy because you can try absence at a regimental courts martial which will inflict at that period 500 lashes. When it comes to desertion, that has to be tried at general courts martial, which is public because the results of that trial are then published in the general orders. So the entire army knows that you had a deserter in your unit. So it's a very clever way of using kind of dodgy phrasing to just manipulate this system and massage it. Um, the other thing to say when it comes to records is that we do have some trial transcript, the full record of what was said by every single person in that courtroom. There are issues with those records. One of them is that the vast, vast majority of what survives is actually officer trials. Now, officer trials make up about a quarter of general courts martial. General courts martial are the only place where you can try officers, so that's not surprising. But that does create problems in and of itself, because what we don't have so much of is the rank and file voice. Now, there are exceptions to that, particularly if you dig into other collections. A lot of the material that survives is at the National Archives, as you'd expect, um, or Office 71, if people want the transcripts. Um, but if you go elsewhere, you can sometimes get a better insight into the sort of the, the minute by minute discussions that go on in courtrooms. So what ends up at TNA is the final version that gets presented to a guy called the Judge Advocate General, who's the guy who administers and oversees the entire system. But that's the, the final draft that gets sent to him. That's not the, uh, the version that gets scribbled down in court. And then, you know, you get crossings out and all the rest of it where people sort of go, actually, no, what I mean to say is this. 
Um, and so, you know, there are other ways that you can get to this stuff, but it's a huge body of material. And then on top of that, of course, you've got the memoirs, memoirs, the letters, the diaries, and it's those really that show the distinction between the theory of how military law should have worked and the reality of how you actually make that system fly in a war zone where you don't know what you're going to have to do the next day and you don't know what you're going to call on these men to do. And it's that reality that I find so much more interesting than this whole kind of capricious and arbitrary and us sort of being blown away by the admittedly horrendous numbers um, that you see when it comes to crime and punishment during this. Which neatly, neatly brings me on to the next uh, question you've nicely segued into is how common was formal punishment in the British Army during this time? See, it's almost like I did that deliberately, having experience of podcasting and having to do that segue. Um, remarkable coincidence there. Uh, the, the honest answer to, to what you're saying is it's massively, it, it's, it's widespread. You know, flogging is endemic in this army. There's no question of that. So I transcribed 9,228 cases. Um, I know I didn't make the full 10,000. I was just slacking. It was an off day. Um, of those, 4,080, yes, I counted them, um, were general courts martial, 1,678. Yes, I remember that number as well, uh, GRCMs, and then about 3,500 are the regimental courts martial. Now, that's not every single crime that was tried in the army during this period, because you, when it gets to the regimental courts martial, for all that there are you know, issues with the surviving material in terms of how um, comprehensive it is, you've still got so much that you've got to take a sample. So I took a sample of 28 regiments. Um, but nonetheless, that's, you know, that's everything that happens at General Court Martial between 1808 and 1818. Same story for GRCMs, 1812 to 18. Now, in that period, the army issues 2 million lashes over those trials that I looked at. Um, and you've got, let's bear in mind, there's a two-tier punishment system going on here. So you can flog a member of the rank and file you can execute a member of the rank and file. You can extend their length of service. You can transport them overseas. You don't see any of that happen to the officers. What you see with the officers is that they might have a private reprimand, a public reprimand. Now, a reprimand is, you know, <laughs> the modern equivalent of a slap on the wrist. It's, you know, your conduct was not good enough. Here are the details of what conduct wasn't good enough. Don't do it again. Have you learned your lesson? Um, you can also uh, give them a bump down the list of seniority so you can kind of suspend them of rank and pay. So there's a financial penalty in there for a period of months. Um, the most I remember seeing is 12 months, but that's very, very rare. Normally it's sort of three or six months um, that that happens. Or you can be cashiered or dismissed from the army. Now, dismissal usually means that you get to retain the value of your commission, because we have to remember this is a period where you buy your rank in the army. And that's hugely important in terms of why there are these distinctions in how rank and file are treated, because if you are able to offer that financial penalty, that ends up being quite a good, not always guaranteed, but quite a good motivator. You don't want to be cashiered, because if you're cashiered, you can't recoup the value of the commission. You can't sell your position in the army after you've been kicked out of it. So it's not just about the shame. It's also about 
do you want to lose the thousands of pounds that you poured into buying your lieutenant colonelcy in the 34th regiment or whatever it might be but you can see it's a very different system at no point does any officer get executed for their conduct now rewind a little bit uh, yes the bing is an obvious one but you know that's a different period and different time um but certainly during the period that i've looked at nobody gets ex- no officer gets executed for their crimes and they're tried for different types of things you know conduct unbecoming is the officer's equivalent of that convenient catchall you know and that conduct unbecoming can be anything from insulting your superior to um alluding to somebody being uh gay because that was a crime during this period but what's really interesting there is that homosexuality was not a crime according to the articles of war so why does the army try it at all ends up being the question the bottom line is the prejudice that was quite common during this period um so you've got all sorts of things kind of going on there what's quite telling is that the proportions of trials are essentially proportionate to rank except for lieutenants <laughs> you've got a, a small number of lieutenants uh you've got a, a very large number of lieutenants who are represented amongst the uh the trials um uh, you've got more lieutenants than you've got ensigns and i suspect the reason for that is that you've got rowdy young men who can buy their way up from ensign to lieutenant quite easily buying your way from lieutenant to captain is a bit harder because you need a vacancy to come up and you've got these young men massive egos a lot of alcohol and men together in a sort of hyper masculine environment in many cases in a war zone and so you get all kinds of insults being thrown and the result of that is jewels conduct unbecoming by sending a challenge uh conduct unbecoming by not responding to that challenge so you can be tried for fighting a duel and tried for not fighting a duel because you didn't show the necessary moral fiber that we expect of an officer because you obeyed the law and didn't fight the duel and so that suggests you might be a coward it's a very very odd system that whole thing in dueling it's a whole podcast in and of itself but yeah lieutenants are, are the naughty boys of this army when it comes to the officer corps um but the, as you'd imagine the most commonly tried individual is of course the private which neatly segues me on to the next question is when they were thinking about punishing uh, the privates what were their assumptions about human nature what uh, what sort of um ideals underpin the system i'm sort of partly thinking about that wellington calls the the rank and file of his army scum of the earth and the idea is that they're all criminals and they can only be controlled by draconian punishments and being flogged every other thursday so what 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 what's going through their head and then interestingly for what you say about officers are officers considered different and having quotes of maybe a different human nature am i allowed to go on a bit of a rant about wellington that scum of the earth comment Yes I am. I'm getting nods. That's vindication. Um brave brave guy, brave host to let me just let fly on um the scum of the earth because I spend a lot of my time bashing this on the head from various different angles. The first is the Wellington apologists who go, "Oh, he didn't meant it. It was a backhanded compliment." Wellington absolutely meant it, and the reason we know he meant it is he said it on four separate occasions, years apart from one. So there is the one that people kind of apologize for. is the years after the peninsula war he turns around and um says that um the men were the scum of the earth 
And then he follows it up with kind of a series of compliments. So he talks about how he could have gone anywhere and done anything with his army. And that's remarkable that, you know, despite the unpromising material that they represented as sort of the pickings of prisons and the lowest orders of society, uh, the army nonetheless managed to make fine fellows of them. And he, you know, attributes that to the officers. Well, that's great. But the original comment is a comment made in absolute apoplectic anger. So some folks will know that the first time this comment ever, as far as we know from any um, kind of surviving source material, the first time scum of the earth is used um, at all is by Wellington in 1813 in a letter to the Earl of Bathurst in very early July. And he says, and I'm quoting it here, it is quite impossible for me or any other man to command the British army under the existing system. We have in the service the scum of the earth as common soldiers. Now, why is he saying that? People go, well, it's after Victoria. It's all about the plundering. Not quite, because you've got the plundering that happens immediately after Victoria, and then you've got what happens in the weeks after Victoria. So just after the Battle of Victoria, the, the French army has been routed. King Joseph, who is effectively untechnical term incoming here, Napoleon's lackey. Napoleon's brother Joseph is kind of instilled on the Spanish throne in 1808 and he's told to rule the country. It's a common play by Napoleon, just kind of instilling member, installing members of his family on different thrones in Europe. Joseph's an absolute disaster. The Spanish really don't take to it. There's a massive uprising that leads to the Peninsula War. 1813 is the last, uh, Victoria is the last stand really for Joseph. It goes catastrophically wrong. The French are totally routed. And Joseph literally has to just drop everything and run. And that includes his baggage, which the, the Anglo-Portuguese and Spanish troops being hungry and very much believing in this culture of, you know, plunder as a reward for risking their lives go, lovely, I'll take the shiny stuff. Thank you very much. Wellington's not happy because he wants that stuff to augment the army's pay chest. But nonetheless... The reason that it's not until early July that he writes this letter is because some men don't return to the unit. And what then happens is that the locals and the uh, officials in Victoria write to Wellington going, look, you know, well done on this victory and everything. But could you do something about these marauders who are just kind of hanging around in the hillside and just plundering and stopping, you know, legitimate people trying to go about their daily business? Because it's very inconvenient. And, you know, it's it's lovely to have you guys in the, the area, but... We just don't want the plundering anymore, thank you. Can that stop? And Wellington's furious because he's got an army that has done incredible things and he wants to move it on. He wants to gather his forces together and keep them under that tight leash that he knows he needs them on. He's seen what the French do during this period, which is is a much laxer system in terms of some pretty brutal reprisals, actually, between guerrillas and um, the French. That's a very kind of brutal war in and of itself but the french also live off the land there is this extra kind of brutality element to the day-to-day relationship in some areas not in all areas some commanders are very good in terms of kind of fostering local relationships Suchet is the obvious example of this uh, in the valencia region Um, but wellington knows that one of the things that has really got under the spanish folks skin is you know kind of brutal behavior wanton plundering and a complete lack of response from the authority, i.e. the French army. So if he then does exactly the same thing, 
there's a chance that the Spanish will turn on him. So he can't afford for this behavior to go unchecked. And that's why he gets so angry. And it's a continuation of a theme that he's been talking about way back since 1809. So that's why he writes the letter. Yes, he absolutely believes it. The next thing, is he right? He's not even close to being right. You know, this is not an army that start with the pickings of prisons. You've got to bear in mind that you're putting guns in these people's hands. You can't just fill it with a bunch of people who've previously broken the law and who have no qualms about breaking the law again. Yes, there are people who absolutely are criminals. Uh, one of the things that the civilian courts could do is commute the death sentence into service for life in an army. But there are penal regiments that can be used for those individuals. So yes, you do get recruiting sergeants occasionally going to you know, debtors' prisons and so on and kind of rounding up individuals to draft them into the army, but these are not the bulk of your fighting force. This is an army of hundreds of thousands of men. There aren't hundreds of thousands of men lining Britain's prisons during this period. What you actually see in terms of recruitment, like most armies across history, is the laboring class makes up the majority of the people. So army recruitment particularly sees spikes in times when laboring individuals really struggle. You know, when there's a poor harvest, and it's hard to get work cutting corn in a field, what do you do? You turn to the army because the army offers you pay every single day. It's appalling, but we'll put that to one side. And they also offer you a meal every day. And when you've got nothing, that security might be worth something. So Wellington's completely wrong on that. Now, as I say, you have got that kernel of bad men. That's, that's human nature. You're always going to have people who try and exploit the system. And the lash is absolutely used as a deterrent. But that doesn't mean that just because you can use the lash that you do, or that just because a punishment is ordered, that you necessarily inflict it in full. Um, and it's worth saying that this, this idea of lash as a deterrent is something that the rank and file in a number of cases explicitly say in surviving accounts that they are invested in. They agree that it's unpleasant, but they also know that the officers will only use it in the situations where it's merited. And that's the really important distinction that we've missed up until now. You know, even people like William Wilberforce, you know, one of the great humanitarians of the age, he doesn't believe in the abolition of flogging in the army. He doesn't think it's appropriate. He doesn't think now's the right time in the midst of a conflict. He also doesn't see how else you keep the excesses of the absolute worst individuals in the army in check. Because, you know, these are men that you've put a gun into the hands of and you have trained them in how to kill. So you do have to be careful in terms of how you manage that situation. You've also got to bear in mind there are different agendas. So we've talked a lot about Wellington. Wellington has one thing in mind and that's command and control. And from his perspective, that means nothing can be tolerated because I've got to tread this very delicate line between keeping the men happy, but also keeping the locals happy. And he can't afford to have the locals lose their patience with him. So that's his priority. Now, for the king and the commander in chief, they don't have quite that same priority. And particularly when it comes to the king, this idea of being a bit benevolent is really quite popular. It's quite a bad move if a court-martial is placed in front of you for confirmation and all of the GCMs that get sent home 
for confirmation have to be examined by the king or the prince regent. If he's then going, yeah, it's fine, just kill this individual that I'm employing, that's not a particularly good look as an employer, even back then. So this idea of, of mercy is really quite significant. And every single death sentence that gets laid before the king or prince regent is commuted to service for life. Every single one, remarkably consistent. You've also got the, the reforms. Those are coming from the commander-in-chief. So we, I talked earlier about the reduction of RCM lashes from 500 to 300. That's the Duke of York. The creation of the GRCM tier to be able to punish more appropriately. I believe that's the, the impetus behind the reform, although the documentary evidence on this is frustratingly scant. Um, again, that's a, a Duke of York initiative. In fact, it's completely sprung on the Judge Advocate General's department. They have no idea how they're going to implement this when it's suddenly hurled into the Mutiny Act. And we know that because you've got the letters from Charles Manor Sutton, who in a sort of 19th century veil, very polite way, goes, how the heck are we meant to enforce this? We don't have the system to deal with this massive influx of cases that you're about to present to us. So, you know, you've got, you've got that emphasis. And we were talking about Charles Manor Sutton, the, the judge advocate general, the guy in charge of the military justice system. He turns around and hurls his own reform into the pot in 1811. He decides that he doesn't like the fact that you can't use solitary confinement as an alternative to flogging. Now, to us today, that sounds like quite a logical thing. But in law, until 1811, you couldn't do that under the Mutiny Act. He brings forward this amendment. The first time it goes through, it's defeated. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you it's not government agenda, which means there's no concerted policy. There's no kind of coalescing. There's no tactics being used in implementing these changes. It's so ad hoc. The only reason this amendment goes through is a member of the opposition turns around the next day and goes, well, you know, it was a real shame that that didn't get passed the other night. You know, how about we resurrect it? Because we've got more people with us today. And on that occasion, it does get passed. So you can already see this kind of pell-mell system where you've got different people, different agendas, and they're trying to do different things with the system. But there's the kind of the elephant in the room here. That's the officers on the ground because they can't beat their men to a pulp. Because that's not you, this combat morale podcast. Your listeners absolutely know this. That's not how you motivate people. If you beat them, they will do one of two things. They will either turn around and stick a bayonet through your eye socket, or they'll be so ill from the beating, they're not able to take the field anyway. And neither of those things is particularly good for unit morale or cohesion or any of the things that really matter on a battlefield. So how does it work for the officers? Well, I call this the pragmatic system of discretionary justice, which is a really fancy way of saying you've got a live and let live system going on here. Um, now, this is the point where uh, Ed Koss's work gets used um, many, many times in my explanations of this, because what is the most common crime that's happening, not the most commonly prosecuted, the most common crime in the army during this period? It's plundering. Why is that the case? A few reasons. One is that there's a culture of plunder for reward within the army. We'll probably talk about that a bit more later. But also there's this issue of plunder for subsistence. Most of the time, men go out in search of food. And then if they find something shiny along the way, they're not going to leave it for somebody else to pick up. 
they're going to take it with them. And that's how you end up on this slippery slope from I've gone out foraging, inverted commas, because I'm going to take the food, but I'm not going to pay for it because my pay is months in arrears, so I can't pay for it. Um, and then, hey, if I find something nice along the way, well, then, you know, say la vie sort of thing. And that's how you end up with this sort of degradation. But why then are they going out searching for food? Because they should get paid, right? There's two reasons for this. One is that the food that they're getting, as Ed has shown, because he's done this kind of breakdown of the nutritional analysis of the food that they're meant to get. And that is wholly inadequate compared to the calories that they're burning day on day. So if they just ate their rations, they would starve to death. That is a mathematical fact. The flip side to that is that they're not even getting the food they're meant to get. So what are you going to do as an officer? You can't say, no, I want you to sit there and starve instead of going and finding something to eat. That's catastrophic for morale. That's catastrophic for your unit, for their health, for everything that these men on a basic level know has to be dealt with. And there's another side to this, which is that the officers are in exactly the same boat. So you've got this complicity in this behavior. And the example that I particularly love of this is one major of a unit who catches his men plundering a mill for flour. And he rides up, he jumps off his horse, stands at the door. He's got an open sack of flour beside him, bellows at the men to get out. And as they run out the door, he just lobs handfuls of flour over them as they're running through the door so that when he puts them on parade, he can see who was in that mill because they've got flour all over them. So he does that. He parades the men and he's walking up and down and he's lambasting them for their behavior, all the things you'd expect. And as he's doing so, a chicken pokes its head up out of the major's pocket. He's been plundering himself minutes before. He's found a chicken and thought, that's going to look lovely on the officer's mess table tonight. I'll be having that. Thank you very much. And he's shoved it in his pocket only for at the most inopportune moment, the chicken to go, it's a bit dark in here. Oh, it's nice and light out here. And so the men see this. And they're in fits of laughter. The major just goes apoplectic until one of the lieutenants quietly whispers in his ear about the situation with the chicken, at which point he laughs, gets back on his horse, rides off, and nobody ever mentions the flower incident again. And this absolutely kind of epitomizes this culture that exists that actually the officers, they understand why they're doing it themselves anyway. And in many cases, they benefit from this themselves because the rank and file know that, you know, you, you find a sheep and you, you dispatch the sheep and separate it out between your mates for the mess pot. But you take a leg of lamb to the officer just as a kind of a nod to, you know, this is a, a token of respect from the men, sir. You know, you enjoy this. And in return, you just don't ask any questions about where it came. Zach, so... We come to the, to look at it, punishment rates and court martial rates between individual units. Now, I'm assuming that the, that the the rates between units can be compared, and they obviously vary. What factors um, actually explain the difference between units uh, and their rates of punishment? So, this is a really interesting one because we do run into a bit of an issue with surviving material. Um, so, we we're not entirely clear why some material doesn't survive. Some of the records. Uh, TNA show signs of fire damage. 
So I suspect that might have been a, an issue. Others show sign of damp, which again might have been an issue. Um, when it comes to the RCM data, we've got this issue that I talked about earlier where some of the returns just aren't kept, but other units are very conscientious. And so we do have this disparity, which means we need to be incredibly difficult about drawing any conclusions about regiment X was so much worse than regiment Y. Because if I've got a consistent string of returns for, let's say, the first regiment of but then for the second regiment of foot, I've only got the returns for, you know, two halves of a year across my 11 year time span. Well, that's not really necessarily a sign that second regiment of foot was better behaved. You do get in instances where uh, regiments try and pull the wool over the inspecting general's eyes and say, no, no regimental courts martial took place at, at this regiment um, over the course of the last six months. And you just sort of think, hmm, is that a fact? I am a little bit skeptical there, but you know, it's, there's 200 years between then and now. And so I, I can't prove that they're, they're fibbing there. But all of that said, there are some um, results that fall out of the analysis that don't surprise us at all. And there are some results that fall out of it that do surprise us. So the 88th, the Connacht Rangers, these have a reputation for being some of the worst behaved men in the army. They're an Irish unit. Uh, Thomas Picton, um, the, the commander of the 3rd Division in Wellington's army during the Peninsula War, parades them on one occasion and says, you are not the Connacht Rangers, you are the Connacht Footpads. And he's basically laying into them for this appalling reputation that they have when it comes to their behaviour particularly plundering, but also there is this perception that Irish recruits are incredibly adept and fierce fighters, but they're incredibly wild characters and spoiling for a fight 100% of the time. And some of the accounts, particularly of officers who are tasked with taking newly enlisted Irishmen, kind of point to this idea that you only had to sort of go boo to an Irishman, and he'd turn around and black your eye. And, you know, you've got these, these accounts that just really push this idea that great fighters, you've got to keep them under control. And how do you keep fierce, unruly people under control in the army during this period? You use the lash, because that's the tool that's at your disposal. Um, so the Connacht Rangers, across the records that I can uncover for them, have 300 RCM cases. Now, that's more than any other unit. So that does seem to fit the stereotype that we have, even with all of the caveats. And I must say the Connacht Rangers um, records are quite good in terms of detail. So, you know, we, it is important to put that caveat in there and take it with just a grain of salt. But there are others where the data is a bit more surprising and where units that we think would have a really good disciplinary record are actually quite bad. The one I get into trouble with the most on this is the much exalted 95th Rifles. Um, so I first broke this on an interview where I was in the same Zoom call as, Zoom, as Sean Bain. Um, <laughs> so I was very much kind of the party pooper on that occasion. And it didn't go down particularly well, shall we say. Um, so to put the numbers out there, so for the first 95th, first battalion 95th, and there are three battalions uh, in total, I looked at all three. Uh, you've got 134 RCMs for 1st 95th, 
and their records aren't consistent the whole way through the period. So that's not everything that they've tried. Second 95th, 120. And their desertion rate is also slightly up on what people expect. So it's about 1.2 desertions per month. Now, by no means is that a big you know, desertion rate, but compare that to another unit that we're not inclined to put on a pedestal because we don't have the whole you know, sharps and, and all the rest of it. And the 95th were the elite and the most intelligent and all of these other um, kind of cliches that we've picked up from, from reading those admittedly brilliant novels. Um, so the 1st Battalion, 40th, they have 0.2 deserters per month on average, and they have similar trial stats. Now, I'll just be a bit balanced in that and say that, for example, the 1st Battalion, 52nd Regiment, which was another light infantry regiment like the 95th Rifles, are really quite badly behaved too. So they have about 250 RCM cases. But the point is that we don't talk about these units on equal terms. And I think it's important that we start to just kind of reassess how we think about the regiments, because actually they're all very steady units. Not one line regiment is sent home by Wellington on grounds of inability or officers being incapable of maintaining discipline or of cowardice from the rank and file. He keeps all of his units in the peninsula because they are battle hardened. They are acclimatized. And, and that's really important because disease is the big killer during this period. About at any one point in time, a third of a unit is coalescing in hospital, uh, sorry, convalescing in hospital. Um, so there aren't problems amongst any of these units. And we like to go like division, 95th rifles. They're all just a bit better than the rest. And I think that's just not the case. And it's partly a reflection of the fact that a lot of the early memoirs that we got were from the light division, and that's just skewed our perspective. That's not to say that they weren't brave men, you know, and I'm at no point am I going to sit here and denigrate their service record, but I do think we just need to be a little bit more careful when we look at the data and go, well, actually, these stats show that they weren't necessarily the absolute creme de la creme in, by every single measurable statistic. So we've talked about formal disciplinary methods. What about informal methods that uh, officers and NCOs could use which aren't recorded but obviously might appear in memoirs and other sources oh boy how long have you got on this one um <laughs> so we've talked about the catch-all sentences right um and we've also talked about the, the the use of the lower tier of court now that in itself ends up being a bit of a minefield because you see terms like ill-treating um, being thrown around, which can be literally anything from I turned around and blacked somebody's eye to um, I threatened to slit their throat. Um, it can sometimes include sexual assault. Uh, so you've got to be incredibly careful in terms of trying to work out the nuts and bolts of what each charge was. Now, why is that important as an informal method? Well, it's all about image, right? And if you as a unit, have to try, you know, 30 men a month at general court-martial because they're being consistently absent from their unit. That's not good. So you try and deal with these things quietly within the regiment. And that is in itself is, in some cases, kind of recognised. You know, we do have instances, particularly in the RCM records uh, and the six-monthly inspection reports, 
of generals turning around and saying, no, you're flogging these men too much. You're bringing too many trials forward, which then raises the question, well, what do they expect to be used as an alternative? And this is where we get to something called the barrack room courts martial. These don't actually exist in law. There's no legal sanction. They have no legal basis. There is no, you have no right to be tried at a barrack room court martial, which means the punishments that they inflict are not legally allowed. And some of those, those punishments are really quite horrible. But the idea is that for the more minor cases, um, particularly things like dirtiness, do you need to put a man on trial for being dirty? Do you need to flog a man for being dirty? Or can you deal with it another way? And one of the best accounts I have is of one guy who is consistently dirty. And actually, he smells quite a bit. And it reaches a point where his fellow messmates are a bit bored of this. They don't like standing next to this man who's always slovenly. They don't like the odour. And so they get the permission of their lieutenant to hold a barrack room court-martial. And he turns around and goes, yeah, that's fine. And what they do is they sit down. They have a, a corporal who presides over the proceedings. They report these proceedings to the lieutenant at the end of it. And what they decide is that the best way to punish him is to strip him naked, dunk him into a horse trough and scrub him until he's red raw. And he absolutely learnt his lesson from that. Um, you've also got an instance that I came across of cobbing. This was where somebody burnt the dinner. And so their punishment by adjudication of a backroom court martial was to slow march up and down uh, a line of his comrades. And they're all beating him around the head with forage cap. And, you know, by the end of it, he's learned his lesson. There are some more insidious um, sounding punishments from backroom courts martial, but I'm not entirely sure that I believe all of them. So one is the knocking out of teeth. So there's a case that we have of a guy who apparently was a biter when he was fighting. And uh, this was deemed inappropriate behavior. And the punishment of the backroom court martial was for him to have his two front teeth knocked out of his upper and lower jaw. They send for the farrier. Um, who says, well, maybe a better way of doing this would be to extract all of the teeth from his lower jaw. That way he can't bite anybody in any capacity because he hasn't got any lower teeth. The reason I don't believe that ever happened is if you took a man's teeth out in an age where they had to bite open musket cartridges, he wouldn't be any use to the army, which would then lead to all kinds of inquiries and questions about how this man suddenly ended up not having any teeth. So I, I just don't believe that that was ever actually implemented. But you've also got you know, minor punishments, um, things like extra drill, uh, removal of privileges, I uh, can't get that word out, the removal of privileges. There we go. So if you overstep the mark, um, let's say, for example, that you get drunk one night and your officer tells you to pipe down and go back to bed and you respond to said officer with a string of expletives, the officer can make a choice. He can have you confined and bring you before a court, or you can apologize to the officer. And if he's inclined to, he might go, this is your first time. I'll let you off in this instance. Do it again. And you know exactly what I'm going to do to you. But once you've overstepped that mark, the officers can be on your case. And we have instances of this. You know, everything that I've said to you is just a, a abbreviated version of accounts that I've come across where this guy does exactly that. He gives his officer a mouthful and the officer 
for the, the weeks that follow, absolutely minutely expects him every single time he's on parade, checks the buckle of his belt, checks that there's no dust on his cap badge, you know, checks the, the priming mechanism on his musket, absolutely makes sure that the belt is the right shade of white, you know, and he does this for weeks on end. And in time, sure, he becomes less particular, but he's not doing it for the others. He's making that kind of statement that, look, you ever set the mark, I'm in charge and I absolutely will hold you to the highest level of account if you are not going to behave yourself properly. Now, the others, I know they do behave themselves, so I will give them a degree of leniency. And he will, you know, march down the rest of the line and just do a quick check of, you know, yep, you're looking fine. Good. Move on. So, you know, this this kind of give and take system is is very much a, a two-way street. You know, there is this mutual trust that you're going to do things the right way. You also get reactionary punishments, as I call them. Um, if nobody's had the chance to, I strongly recommend the letters of Private William Wheeler, not least because of the accounts we get of Colonel Mainwaring, who, to use a very untechnical term here, was an absolute nut job of a man. Very, very um what's the the delicate way of putting this um a very eccentric individual shall we say so on one occasion somebody has um deserted from the unit mainwaring doesn't really want to do the full desertion trial thing for the reasons that we've discussed so he appeals to the regiment and says well what am i meant to do well nobody's got an answer he's the colonel he's the one who decides on the punishment so what he does is he makes the man strip naked and then walk underneath the battalion colours. And what he says is that I'm using the battalion colours and the honour of the regiment to wash away this man's dishonourable behaviour. A really odd way of doing things, but he makes the guy do it twice and he goes, you do it again, it'll be a very different story. On another occasion, um, he just literally throws somebody into a ditch just because they're not behaving themselves. <laughs> and the guy's kind of going... Um, I kind of deserved that, but we, we would rather that you didn't do that again. Thank you very much, sir. Um, he's an Irishman, so he says it in, in a, a, a very different way to that. Um, but the message is still there. You know, there are different ways of instilling discipline. They don't always need to be the lash, but it's always about bonds of trust. And it's always about knowing when to step in, when to punish something through the formal methods, when you can let something go entirely or whether actually all you need to do is have a quiet word with the sergeant about whether or not private X needs to be taught a lesson, inverted commas, and, you know, might be taken around the back of the barracks and given a black eye. You know, sometimes these are, you know, very illegal forms of punishment. There isn't a legal sanction for them. Um, but while I say that, the one curious thing about barrack room courts martial is that some standing orders for regiments explicitly say don't take cases to RCM. Instead, use barrack room courts martial, even though there is no, you know, there's no record keeping, so there's no accountability, there's no legal um, approval for any of this. So you do get this system where everybody knows what's going on and they're all playing the same game. But why are they doing that? Because the army's got to fight. So the penultimate question is, what impact did the disciplinary system have on the morale and motivation of British troops? Did it achieve an ordered and an efficient fighting force? Again, you know, a la Ed Koss, 
Um, yes, it does. It does on, on a few levels. And it comes back to ideas about what motivates a soldier in combat. One of those things, by no means the only thing, um, but one of those things is absolutely the people that you are with within your mess group. Another of those things is that, you know, you've all got to play a role within this force. But also there are certain things that are accepted. This idea that you get to plunder the bodies of your enemy and take that plunder with you, that's a thing. And that's part of what motivates these men. So, you know, why don't you follow the law to the letter? Well, in one sense, these men need to fight. And as we said, you know, if you flog them, if you give them 1200 lashes, they're not going to be able to fight. Um, but they're going to be even less inclined to obey you. We know from the accounts that the harshest means of discipline were not just frowned on by the generals because, well, you've got a lot of trials here and isn't this a bit sort of over the top. The reason the generals are commenting on this is because a martinet is bad for morale. That's bad for cohesion. And we go back to this idea of this culture of plunder to survive and this culture of plunder for reward. It's worth saying, even the officers are picking up things, little trinkets as they go along the way. Um, you know, a nice set of silver spoons. That's lovely. I'll take that. We'll add that to the mess, you know? Um, so breaking that culture has a whole series of negative impacts. I'll give you one example. We'll go back to Vittoria. I have an account from a private who behaves himself really well for the first three years that he's out in the Iberian Peninsula. Then his pack gets searched the morning after the Battle of Vittoria. He's done what every other soldier who could get near the baggage train has done, and he's filled it with loot. That loot is then emptied out of his pack, taken away, and he never sees it again. And he is apoplectic, so much so that he explicitly states in his memoir that from that moment on, he did everything he could possibly think of to raise hell for his officers, take every advantage he could out of every situation. And you can see it in the sheer change of what he's talking about. You know, before this point in the memoir, you get this sense that actually this guy was behaving himself pretty well. There are odd occasions where he oversteps the mark slightly, but they're minor infringements. From that point onwards, he's actively working with the more kind of criminal, inverted commas, elements of the unit to just take whatever he can, whenever he can, take a cut of this. Um, so this, if you offend that culture, you will have a negative kind of almost knee-jerk reaction from your men. Um, but there are lines in, in the other sense, you know, it's not just about the, the code that exists amongst the rank and file and well, the officers aren't allowed to deprive us of our plunder. There are other lines, desertion. That's a big one because desertion has circumstances in which it's okay. So for example, Ed Costello in the aftermath of the Peninsula War remarks on how when the army wasn't willing to take the unofficial battalion wives back to the UK, a number of men who'd struck up liaisons with local Spanish girls just decided enough's enough. I'm going off into the Spanish interior and there's nothing you can do to stop me. Now, does Costello regard those men negatively? No, he absolutely understands. And that's because the army is basically saying, we're only going to take the official battalion wives. If you're not officially on the strength, well, it doesn't matter if you've married, it doesn't matter if you've got kids with her, you're never seeing her again, unless you can pay a passage for her to get back to the UK. And these are the rank and file. Of course, they can't afford. So in those instances, you, you get this sense that 
some men understand but there are other cases when desertion isn't okay and that's about breaking that kind of that primary group bond this idea that your survival is dependent on everybody pulling their weight and that comes down to plundering and sharing what you plunder because if you plundered a chicken you don't just eat the whole thing yourself you share it with your comrades we put it in the mess parts and we all get our bit when it comes to um, that inclination what it, what is it that motivates you on a battlefield it's trust right you trust the man to the left of you and the man to the left of him and the man to the left of him to stand and fight and do your bit because that's how fighting in the line works if one person gets cold feet and runs away suddenly you don't have a solid thin red line as as the phrase uh is used um so if you're going to desert that breaks that dynamic so by and large desertion is frowned upon but because it's frowned upon universally you don't want to necessarily as we keep saying kick it upstairs so that everybody knows about it because it's tried at general court martial so you've got that element of it and there's this expectation that the officers will do the right thing flog sure but do you need to do the whole flogging or can you let somebody take 50 lashes and then say look in my professional opinion this man has had enough now normally that responsibility lies with the surgeon but the officers on parade can step in they can appeal on behalf of the man who is receiving the punishment and say i will vouch for this individual you even get cases where the rank and file are consulted will you vouch for this man as a unit no okay the flogging continues will the company that this man belongs to vouch for his future good conduct no okay the flogging continues 25 lashes later will one person in this man's company vouch for his good behavior in future somebody does okay stop the punishment so it's very much about this kind of sense of honor amongst the men can we trust people to do the right thing in the right circumstances and if you can't then he deserves that punishment because they know what the law is it's read to them every two months so it all comes together in this very complex system of as i say discretion you know that's why i, I term it a pragmatic system of discretionary justice um but the, the equally you know we we talk about the martinets in all of this who's the most famous martinet of them all it's easily black bob crawford but even crawford on one occasion stops a flogging almost before it's even begun so there's and i i'm opening the, the book that i'm writing on this topic with this anecdote so he parades the unit because somebody's been caught plundering. Um, the guy appeals to him and says, look, will you uh, let me off on this occasion? The guy goes, Crawford goes, no, your crime is too great. Take your shirt off. You're going to be flogged. Um, so Crawford, you know, Crawford's blood is up. He is not inclined to step down on this occasion. And then the private turns around and says, sir, do you remember that time when we were all prisoners during the Buenos Aires expedition? And I shared the last of my biscuit with you because we were all in such a horrendous state. And Crawford just crumbles. He's in floods of tears. He's trying to hide it from the rest of the unit that's on parade around him. Catastrophically fails in that attempt to hide how emotionally affected he is by the whole thing. Um, and then when, he, in fact, he's so emotional that he turns away. He doesn't see the drummer boy step up to inflict the first lash whirls around as soon as he hears the impact and tells the drummer to stop says that that man can't flog send him for drill um 
and then you know kind of mumbles to himself why do you you know behave like this this is this is just not right a, a good soldier such as yourself yourself should not be doing this gets on his horse rides off it's over the guy's not the guy's not punished you know so even these perceptions we have of the fiercest of officers they will do the right thing if they can determine that actually you know this soldier he's a good egg at heart yes he does things that aren't acceptable on occasion in a perfect world but we know this isn't a perfect world and the 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 system that exists in the army the military justice system it absolutely reflects that and my final question is where in the world can people find out more about your charity podcast and work well if they haven't been bored to death already by the last however long we've been going um you can hear more of my witterings on a wide variety of things not just crime and punishment although I do tend to find a way to shoehorn it into conversations when I can. Um, so the Napoleonic Wars podcast, you'll get it wherever you get your podcasts, um, Apple, Spotify, all the rest of it. You can find me on Twitter at History, and the charity, um, which is the thing that I hope will be of most interest because I would hope that a lot of your listeners will kind of feel that sense of, you know, these are veterans of the period. They deserve to be treated with a, a modicum of respect. And that's fundamentally what the charity seeks to do, to honour their sacrifice, whether it's literal in terms of loss of life or whether it's you know, psychological in terms of time served. Um, if you would like to know more about what we do and what we are doing, go to www.nrwgc.com. We are a registered charity, so you can look us up on the Charity Commission website, if you like, Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves Charity. If you're interested in becoming a member, fantastic. There are all kinds of perks to that. I'll let you kind of explore the details of that on the website rather than harking on about them here. But we try and work a system where actually in the long run, you end up gaining more than you spend by various means, you know, discounts of publishers, free entry into events, those sorts of things. Um, it's our way of kind of giving back to you. And in the, in the process, you know, you're doing a good thing by helping to conserve the resting places of these men, helping us to share their stories. Um, so yeah, you can find us on Twitter at NRWG Charity or www.nrwgc.com. Zach, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure.